Hello, and welcome to What I'd Say presents Straight No Chaser One Shot. In part two of this four-part series, the rest of the guys take us through their history, including their college days. They then talk about how they got discovered by the world through YouTube, as well as discussing the wild ride along the way. We then discuss the 10-year anniversary of their classic album, Holiday Spirits, which gets reissued on November 16th, as well as their new album, One Shot, which comes out on November 2nd. I'm going to let the guys introduce themselves and let them start the fun. Hi, my name is Jerome Collins. Hi, I'm Charlie Meckling. Hi, I'm Segi Isho. Hi, I'm Walter Chase. I'll start out. This is Charlie. Well, we uh, started this at Indiana University. We all knew each other from show choir called the Singing Hoosiers. And that was a lot of kind of traditional music and some cheesy choreography and a lot of fun. But we wanted to sing stuff we heard on the radio, stuff that we thought would be fun. So we went around the room with a few of us thinking like, okay, that guy, he's a pretty good baritone. Oh, he's a great tenor. We'll, we'll take him. And then we just kind of approached each other and we're like, hey, do you want to get together and try to sing maybe for some food or girls or whatever? And it's going to take a ton of extra time, but we all had a lot of fun getting this going. And we were rehearsing at midnight in the music building while we have 8 a.m. classes and stuff. A lot of work, but a lot of fun. And so that kind of snowballed through college. And one of the culminating performances was we were able to perform at the Musical Arts Center at IU which was pretty rare. I don't think a non-music school group had ever performed there. For that one, we thought that was really special. So let's hire a film crew. So we hired like a three or four camera film crew to record that. As we graduated, we brought in new members and Segi was one of those. Mike was one of those. Ryan, you may know a couple of the guys, but us originals eventually graduated and went our own ways. And in the meantime, at some point in the early 2000s, the video crew that had recorded the concert, somebody contacted Randy out of the blue and said, hey, we got these tapes that have Straight No Chaser on them. Do you want them? So they sent over a few Betamax tapes or and so Randy had to find a way to convert those to digital. And when he did that, he wanted to show all of us. So he uploaded it to YouTube, which was brand new. None of us had heard of it. Jerome still hasn't heard of it. He's not very technologically savvy. He passed it around, emailed it to us. And we were like, oh my gosh, look at us 10 years ago. That's awesome. And then from there, people just started passing it around. That's the concert that featured the 12 Days of Christmas. And when that went viral in 2007, after being on YouTube for a year and one month, it just blew up and seven or eight million views. We got a call from Atlantic Records that New Year's Day. Where do we start? I mean, there's a funny moment, which is uh, probably our first concert when we saw a line of people lined up for a concert that we didn't know they were lining up for us. But I thought it was funny. I was like, who wonder who's here today? Look at that line. You know, there was just kind of a funny moment that we didn't think that what we were going to do was going to turn out to be anywhere near where it is today, let alone being something uh, pretty big on campus. But I think the funny stories are just how we you know, knocking on dorm room doors, girls coming out confused, what's going on, and hear us singing One Fine Day, uh, you know, up and down the hallways. It just was kind of comical the way that we all got started. We just we were literally just trying to get the name and word out there, but we found ourselves doing some things that probably in life we probably would never do again, hopefully. Well, I mean, what's funny about it is we weren't a group anymore. We left the group at IU and we were all doing completely different things. I was living in New York trying to get, make my way to Broadway. Segi was in Vegas. But I mean, we were all doing all sorts of different things. And we literally had to get back together, rehearse and learn a few songs together again to go into Atlantic Records and audition for that first record contract. I mean, we never in a million years thought that this would be a profession for us. People knew about Straight No Chaser on other college campuses for specific reasons. We were more suited to be a fraternity 
than an acapella group in every sense of the word. We would go to like different invitationals at different schools. We would just roll in and just take over. We have this song that we used to do in college called Dry Campus. And we went to University of Michigan one year and we had totally rewritten the lyrics to be totally about U of M, knocking on Michigan State, knocking on Ohio State, talking about things that were going on campus. And we just completely stole their crowd. And I don't think the local group was very happy about that. And then afterwards, we show up at the after party and, you know, we just do what we do best. You know, we take over the party. We're having them get extra kegs because, you know, more partiers than than singers at this point. But that was just kind of how we rolled. You know, we didn't take ourselves, you know, seriously like a lot of these groups did. Our vibe was more about having a good time while being an acapella group rather than being an acapella group and trying to be so technically sound and everything. It was really more about the camaraderie of the guys in the group and the brotherhood we had and, you know, living up that college lifestyle. So, I mean, there's so many stories. I just don't remember most of them because of that fact. (laughs) So we have all graduated from college. We've all been living our separate lives. Some of us married, some of us not married, some of us with kids most of us without kids and, you know, working in either nine to five jobs or working somewhere in entertainment. And we get this video, it starts to pick up steam. And now we're given the opportunity to fly to New York City and meet with not just Atlantic Records, but the CEO of Atlantic Records, Craig Coleman. We had not sung together, the 10 of us, in years. I mean, every time we'd come together for someone else's wedding or a special event. If we'd gone to Mardi Gras together, we did that one year. Anytime we'd get together, we would be in a situation where we'd end up singing for somebody or just us singing for ourselves, really. And that's the only rehearsal that we had had since most of us had graduated from college, you know, seven, eight years prior. The day before the meeting at Atlantic, we flew in and started rehearsing in someone's hotel room. And then the morning of, we all got together hours before we were going over there. And we were downstairs in some lobby of a hotel singing the same two or three songs that we had sung a hundred times back in college, but just wanted to make sure that we were just on our game as much as possible, double checking harmonies, making sure that everybody was locked into what we were going to do and nervous, right? I mean, because this is this was our shot. This was our chance to do it. And we get over to Atlantic and we go up however many floors and we meet with not only Craig Coleman, but there's other people who are A&R, different departments in Atlantic. And I remember us going into a larger conference room and we were just sitting around talking and then they just asked us to start singing. And we sang a couple of songs that we had done back in college and we were quite comfortable with and showed off some soloists and showed off our different dynamics that we can do as a group. And I remember us just talking with them casually and basically on the spot, them offering us a chance to sign with Atlantic Records. I was actually over in Hong Kong putting on a production of Lion King. You know, I was enjoying life over in Hong Kong. It was, it was cool, but I was, I've was i always had a desire in my own heart to, to always want to just get on the road and just tour different cities, perform. But so what better chance when I got the call, I literally remember it was four in the morning, Hong Kong time, when a couple of guys had 
called me and I kind of thought they were joking at first. I was like, it's a hell of a way to call a person at four in the morning to prank them with. Then they called back because I hung up at first and then they called back and I, they said, this is really happening. We have been offered a record deal with Atlantic Records. So are you in or are you out? Walked in the next morning and said, you got two more weeks. Then I did my two weeks and bounce. And, you know, obviously at first I wasn't real sure. I'm like, what am I doing? You know, like you said, losing your status. I wanted to make sure I was equity and on the path and, and staying in fresh in these Broadway producers' minds. I was like, well, you know, doing this could really hurt. I always believe that the greatest risk is not taking one. So I just took the risk and we all did. And we to see the other guys were doing it too, it, it just made that much easier for me to say, hey, are you doing this? Yeah, I'm doing it. Then let's do it. You know, so we, we did it. And obviously it was the, one of the best decisions uh, I ever made in life. My wife's looking at me. Besides marriage and my children, this was the <laughs> best thing I've ever done in my life. Hey, just tell her if not for a straight no chaser, you never would have met her. There you go. There you go. Some of the diciest times weren't necessarily, should we get together and do this audition and see what happens. Cause you know, with, with personal time or, you know, how much disclosure you were able to give, I mean, Jerome had to fly back from Hong Kong in order to do this audition, but a lot of us were still holding on to our day jobs as long as we possibly could. I was working for a financial advisory company and I continued working there for another eight months after the Atlantic audition. At one point when we were getting together for, I think, three weeks to record, I went to my boss and explained to him what was going on. And he was incredibly supportive, you know, just basically told me to keep him informed what was going on. And, you know, just said that as long as I'm using my personal time, that we were in good shape. And then it came to the point later in the year, around December, we were now going on tour for three weeks. And I had basically run out of personal time and had to have another conversation about, hey, listen, at this point, I think I need to step away. And this is just for three weeks of touring that we were not going to be making any money. On the back end of this was going to be a January where we were just, you know, there was nothing on the horizon. But I had to, at that point, give my my month's notice and just hope that something was going to happen. And I remember that first half a year, there were six months before we had really anything else going on. And we had met our manager at that point, David Britz. We were just asking, what are we going to do for money? What are we going to do? What kind of gigs we're going to do? I remember, and our manager will joke to me at this point, still, I'd mentioned to him, what, why don't we just perform at like local high schools, like there's other acapella groups that I've, you know, I've seen perform at my high school and other high schools. And he said, you know, we've got to do this right. We've just got to be patient and hopefully we can just all hang on. And we had a group member who, we had a couple group members that decided they couldn't do it anymore. And they went back to their jobs and we replaced them with other guys that had gone through Street No Chaser. But for me, it was, I had held on to my job as long as possible and then had to walk away when that, when that first December tour came. For us, it was just, it was just a shot in the dark. I mean, we, let's go out here and see if we can just put our best foot and the guys came up with some great arrangements and we didn't really know what we were doing. We just went in there and just sort of stuff against the wall. And I mean, lo and behold, that, that album has gone gold. A couple of guys that didn't know what they were doing just went in there and, and created something that one of our top selling, if not the top selling album we've ever recorded, was just trying something and seeing where it went. It's not a lot of things we remember because it was so long ago, but I just remember that it was probably a stress-free album. We didn't know what the standard was for recording you know, acapella album. So this was just something that you know was pretty easy to us. We just went in there and did, we did a show on st on stage and in the studio. So it's, you know, and the rest is uh, obviously history, but it turned out to be a pretty good. And you know, what's crazy about that first album is that was while we were all still trying to hold down day jobs. So, I mean, we were literally going to our day jobs throughout the week, getting on a plane Friday night, flying in to rehearse and do whatever we could 
back to the grind on Monday. I mean, it was a long year of a lot of work without knowing where this was going to go. There was no guarantee at, at that point. And for Atlantic working with an acapella group, this was also a learning experience for them. I mean, they came to us and said, how have you recorded your albums in the past? And we said, well, we would record it in Bloomington, Indiana at a studio that was about 10 miles north in the middle of literally nowhere. When our A&R representative from Atlantic, Steve Lunt, who still works with us uh, to this day, he's been working with us for 10 years now, first made the trip out there. He was singing the Deliverance theme song as he was going up through the hills of Bloomington. And I believe Craig Coleman came out to that studio as well. It might have been a different studio in New York. It was a learning curve for us, I mean, to, to figure out the best thing that Atlantic did was, in retrospect, is they said, just do what's comfortable for you guys. They came in and helped coach us as arrangers and coach us in a producing sense and work with our engineers to just say, let's get the vibe to be a certain way, but let's not get in the way and try to reinvent how you guys recorded your albums. And I think it was great. Over the years, we have tightened it up and learned how to do things better. But that first album was a big learning curve for not only the group, but I think for Atlantic working with an acapella group. Yeah. I mean, once once that happened and we, we did the first tour for that CD was like 12 shows or something like that. I mean, it was just, it was a brutal tour. We were driving around. Our tour manager at the time was driving us in a van from show to show across the country. It was so much more driving than performing or being in any city, but it was insane and, and crazy. I mean, Steve was still in grad school. So there was a gig that we did where he had to go and take a final that December and then fly back to meet us. And he was delayed and whatnot. So we started the show and he's literally in a cab from the airport changing into his his suit and he shows up on stage like six songs in we hadn't been able to do any of his solos until then so we went back to back to back on steve solos right off the bat i mean that was a, a rough one there and that was really just to get our name out there and then january hits and like what was saying like we were like okay, now what do we do? How do we make money out of this? So it was working hard and, and getting more music and trying to find gigs. And especially in those early days, we were just any gig that came to us. We, we didn't turn down anything. We, we did everything paid or not just to get our faces out there and our name out there with no guarantees. I mean, that, that's the business really. There was a moment in Los Angeles. It was our first tour that we were doing in 2008, where we came off the stage to find out that we had gone, our holiday album had gone number one on iTunes for, I forget if it was for vocal albums or vocal Christmas albums. It didn't matter. Just the idea that we were gaining traction you know, on an album that we were just a group that had a video that went viral on YouTube. And that was a point of, is this real? Is this going to happen from this? And any landmark like that was was a stepping stone for confidence. And boy, did it take a lot of confidence and a lot of faith to, to walk away from our jobs. And the next tour that we had the next year was still, we didn't make a lot of money. Our bus drivers were making more money than we had made on the tour that we did. And it was the first time that we had really stayed away from home that long to tour. It built every year from, but those first couple of years are really the, the years where we can look back and, and say that we, you know, we took a chance and it paid off and it took a lot of faith those first couple of years, splitting between 10 of us. You know, it's a lot of bands, there's four guys, there's five guys. There are groups that make a lot more money off of recordings. Like we were a group that were making our money off of our touring. And that touring, we would come to shows and we say, you know, word of mouth. And, you know, finally, when 
social media picked up, we were huge benefactors of that. Those first couple of tours, when people would see us, they would come back and bring somebody and you would see mothers bringing their, their kids and kids bringing their, their parents. And it was always somebody bringing someone else that helped us get off the ground in those early days. In those first couple of years, you know, we were almost having to come to terms with the fact that, okay, we were going to be this seasonal thing. Straight Note Chaser was really only going to live in the fourth quarter. There were no promoters that were going to put up any money to put on a Straight Note Chaser show in April because we're the Christmas guys. We're the 12 Days guys. We're the Can Can guys. We're, we're not a thing outside of the holidays. And it really was those early promoters that have now become family that just were like, you know what? Let's see what happens. Let's put up a show. Let's go out to Portland. Let's go wherever. Let's do... 800 seats. Let's see if we can get any kind of traction outside of the holiday season and see what's going on. And I think all of our mindset going into that tour was we were on the same page. Like we really have to knock this tour out of the park because if we can't make this happen year round, then we're not sure how long this is going to live for. PBS was a great catalyst on all of our success in and mostly outside of the the holiday time frame because you know people were seeing us on PBS all year round so that helped so much but man that first spring tour was kind of a make it or break it time for Straight No Chaser whether it was going to be a real career or kind of something we did on the side in in November and December and you know speaking of PBS uh, that was two of the guys' first show, Seggy and Tyler. We we just lost two of the guys because they were wanting to start families. And so we auditioned some of the other guys from the college group and Seggy and Tyler were standouts and rehearsed them and rehearsed them and threw them into the fire with that PBS show. I mean, almost literally the fire. That venue, if you watch that first PBS special, had no air conditioning. It was summer in New York. We were sweating bullets, especially Seggy and Tyler. I mean, I don't know. Seggy wants to talk about how that show was. Oh, nothing like having your very first performance with a bunch of guys that you'd never performed before with uh, being nationally televised multiple times. And during his audition, Seggy told us that we should be down to eight and shouldn't audition him. So that was even more ironic that he did that show. <laughs> uh, now you guys wish you would have listened. Well, from there, we, we kind of realized that, okay, we might have something here. And, you know, we really started to focus in on streamlining every area of this business. You know, how can we be the most efficient at touring, at recording albums? You know, there's 10 guys in this group splitting everything equally. There's the label, there's our manager, there's the agent. There's a lot of people with their hands in the pot. So we really have to get out there and do pretty much as many shows as possible. I mean, we were that first fall tour where Walt was talking about us not making as much as the drivers. That was our longest tour we've ever done. It was 72 shows. It was just like three solid months away from home. But really, we had to lay the groundwork. You know, we had to get out in front of as many people as we possibly could to let them know who we were because most people had no idea what they were coming to see. And, you know, we still get that today. a lot of people will come through the autograph line after the show and say, listen, I had no clue who you guys were. I saw there was a show here. I love this theater. I came and checked it out. You got a fan for life. And that was our goal. And we knew once we had people in the seats, we knew we could hook them. You know, we're very proud of the show we put on. We're very confident in that we're going to give people an experience that they're not going to get at most other concerts or shows or whatever. So it was really about us 
you know, focusing on putting out the best possible product we could, trying to find the right songs to put on albums, trying to find the right songs to put in the show, finding the right choreographer to work with, finding the right lighting director, the right sound engineer. I mean, the guy who mixes our shows is just as important as anyone in the group. I mean, that is a talent that is, you know, exceptional and it needs to be that good. And it took some years to find that guy and we got that guy now. So it was really us putting our heads down kind of getting tunnel vision on let's make straight no chaser as good as we possibly can and let's get it out in front of as many people as possible so when we were in college we would sing holiday songs around december at our holiday show we do a couple songs here we are as a professional group and our entire fame is based off well fame in quotes is based off of a holiday song so when atlantic says you guys are doing your first album we figured okay, what are some of the, the songs that we did back in school that worked out? And they're like, no, 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 we're going to do a holiday album first up. And we're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So here we are combing through, there are so many holiday songs to choose from. There's There are hymns, there are contemporary songs, there are songs that are hidden gems. And for us, I think one of the things that we wanted to balance was not only finding those beautiful Park the Herald Angels Sing and Carol of the Bells, the traditional songs that we can put an acapella spin on, but also finding songs that are comedic and fun, you know, Little Saint Nick by the Beach Boys, Jingle Bell Rock, you know, finding songs that are not only fun, but show off our personality. And then also we have a ton of different types of vocalists. We, we have guys that can sing a sweet little Jesus boy like Steve Morgan. You know, we have Santa Claus is coming to town, the Jackson 5 version. We have Jerome just crush a Michael Jackson solo and show our versatility off, not only, you know, as an acapella group, but as legit soloists that you know happen to be able to sing a cappella too well something uh especially with holiday spirits but all of our christmas albums something that i don't think people realize is that we're singing all these songs about christmas and santa claus and whatnot and we're doing it in the dead of heat in indiana summer out in the middle of nowhere it's a it's a weird thing to be looking out the window while singing about santa claus and just seeing the sweltering heat, the lushness of Indiana in the summer, which it does not look like in the winter. Between holiday spirits and Christmas cheers, I would describe holiday spirits as like your nostalgic Christmas. It's fun. It's, it reminds you of your childhood. It reminds you of your family. And then Christmas cheers is kind of more like the office Christmas party, that sort of thing. So holiday spirits, I mean, we didn't plan them that way. It's just those being the first two albums, we they were just a little bit different. But holiday spirits really has so much like traditional stuff. I mean, we had all of the Christmas catalog to choose from, and we chose what we thought were, were the biggest ones. So, I mean, there are just, there, there are so many big Christmas songs on there. It's a classic album really i think we were in gosh i want to say we were in colorado doing a show either in fort collins or out at the air force academy and all the dressing rooms and stuff were downstairs in this huge cement like fortress of a building so no one had cell phone service the wi-fi was was pretty spotty and i remember i'd left my phone on the bus outside after the show i'd run out to the bus to grab my phone and the first thing i saw was an email from our manager from brits saying hey guys we got Elton John and I remember running home like I had the golden ticket and I was in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and I go sprinting down the stairs I get to the green room and I just start yelling we got Elton John and most people are around are just so confused but I mean that moment was insane I mean never in a million years did we think we would land the artists that we did? You know, when this first came up about getting a collaboration album together, they said, all right, make a dream list of 
some of the artists you want to collaborate with. All of us were kind of jokingly adding the Elton Johns and the McCartneys and the Phil Collins of the world. And then (laughs) they started happening. It was so surreal. I mean, first of all, we didn't think that our career would have gotten this far anyway. And then on top of that, now we have Elton John's going to sing on our album. Phil, wait, wait a second. Is this real? Or is this like, are we being punk? What's happening? This is got to be fake. It was just, I remember it was that very first one was the most surreal. And like Walt said, you know, anytime we got one of those wins, it helped the confidence so much. And that was definitely one of those wins where it was just like, all right, I think some people at least are taking us seriously. I mean, nobody is more surprised than us when these people who we feel are big names in music. I mean, these are idols of ours. Nobody's more surprised of us than us when they actually know who we are. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I know it's a manager calling and whatnot, but they agree to do this and they look us up and they're like, yeah, this seems like something I want to do. I mean, it is a pinch yourself moment every time you read those album listings. I mean, Elton John, Stevie Wonder, Phil Collins, Sarah Bareilles. I mean, it's just, it's surreal. Another one I remember finding out about was Dolly Parton because we were on the road and she finally agreed to do that Jolene version with us. So we had to find a studio. We all met at a studio in Chicago. We knocked out that one track for that album at a random uh, studio on the road because we were so, so psyched that she wanted to do that song. I think the most surprising thing, at least for me, was when we were in LA recording the album, we had known that Sarah Bareilles was coming in that day to record with us. We're in the studio, we're all in the studio, and there's already a ton of us. And our manager's there, we have a videographer there, we have the engineer, we have the producer. So there's probably a good 14, 15 people in the studio already in this small room. We're expecting a manager, maybe a publicist, an assistant, the standard entourage. There's a knock on the door and the door opens. Sarah Bareilles just walks in, sets down her bag, and she's like, all right, what are we doing? Let's get going. And we're all just like, wait, what? You just showed up alone? Just the realness of that moment where it was like, we didn't really see ourselves as worthy of that. Like, she just was there and by herself and cool and super down to earth and normal. I don't know what we were expecting or what I was expecting, but that was very surreal because she looked at us like equals. I know I certainly was not looking at myself as equal to Sarah Bareilles. It was one of those moments where you're just like, wait a minute, don't you understand the hierarchy here? Like you're way up here and we're this acapella group, but she didn't look at it that way. And she just came in like another member of the group and was like, let's get to work. Let's do it. And she was super cool. I'll tell a quick one. We recorded a song called Text Me Merry Christmas with Kristen Bell. I had the opportunity to fly out to LA and be in studio with her. Frozen had just happened and you know she's this amazing talent and huge star. And when she came into the studio, I think I knew, but I didn't know that she was eight months pregnant and she was in there recording this track and having to take breaks between each because she just didn't have the breath support that she wished she could have because she was carrying a human that was a month away from being born. She was so delightful and so fun to work with. Just showed that, you know, under pressure, you know, in a situation, working with a group that she probably knew something about. But the fact that she did that and was working with us and in that situation, I thought was really special. And it was a great life lesson for me as a performer. Yeah, I mean, the Harris gigs that we did the first summer, I think we did 40 shows and the second summer, 45, somewhere around that. In college, when we started out, we over the summers and whereas a lot of people just kind of go home, a lot of acapella groups go home and then they get back together in the fall. We decided to find a way to go and do gigs for the summer. So we all moved up to Chicago and sleeping on people's couches, sleeping in a wherever we could afford. And just so that we could sing as much as we could and take all the gigs we could and perform 
wherever, out on Navy Pier or a private gig or whatever. And that kind of reminds me of what those Harris gigs were for us because it was an opportunity for us to all be together, all focus on the show. I think it really helped us develop a show instead of just a concert with songs. It gave us themes to go with and, and lots of stuff to play with. I think it really honed us as performers, not just singers. Basically, out of that first year at Atlantic City, we started to form a fan base, which Kathy Lee Gifford later, while we were on the Today Show, coined the Chasers. And these Chasers started off with just maybe a couple coming to a show, and they told some other friends of theirs. And lo and behold, these people were coming to 15, 20 shows that we were doing in the summertime, sometimes four or five times a night in a row. So it's just kind of cool that this family that started outside of the group, they're doing retreats. They're going to each other's homes. They're visiting each other, even when they're not coming to see a Straight No Chaser show. Cool for us that as we were growing, our family was growing on along with us, a fan base, the Chaser family. It's growing and it's strong by strong. These Chasers, we have a fan that's hit over 200 shows. It's just kind of cool and exciting to see something that we started back in Jersey. And we wanted to build our fans, wanted to build our show. And along the way, we built a family of friends. So it's just been a kind of a cool experience to see people grow along with us. We knew that we were going to record an album this year and we were on tour last fall. We were in a dressing room at the Embassy Theater in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And we're sitting there, we're trying to think of different ideas and songs that might fit or, or concepts. You know, I think it was Walt that said, hey, what if we kind of did an album where it told our story, Straight No Chaser, the musical, something along those lines. And the more we thought about it, the more it made sense. You know, we have all these very specific points in our story that help turn the page with Straight No Chaser. So why not find a song that conveys kind of the message of that story? First, getting that call from Atlantic. What is the song that will really resonate with that notion? And then we kind of just mapped out what we thought the main storylines were, the main plot lines. We put those down on paper and we said, all right, these are the 14 different storyline categories that we have. These are the ones that really push the story along. Then it was like, okay, now let's try to assign some songs with these categories. Let's try to get a few songs for each category and then kind of whittle it down to the ones we're most excited about. You know, I think we did a really good job of conveying our story through song. Obviously, it's it's not our own lyrics and our own songs, but if you look at the track listing and just read it top to bottom, you'll kind of see the story arc. You'll be able to follow along, see where in the Straight No Chaser story you are by looking just even at the track title. I'd say it's more of like the build on that, just sort of like a timeline of our story. Our story doesn't have an ending. It's sort of as a beginning, a middle, and just a climb, beginning and end. We don't really have an end. Our story is still being written, but I think this gives people a good insight to where we came from and where our roots are and the songs and the themes that fit the time frame of what we're going through in our lives as starting this group back then. We included the the first track on the on the album is a mashup of a Boys to Men song and a Montel Jordan song. This is how we do it, Motown Philly. The reason why this came about, we used to do a version of This Is How We Do It. When we were in college, it was sort of our stepping out song for a bunch of young guys, 19, 20. It was us trying to sing and it really showed our swagger. And I think it was important for us to start the album out doing something that reminded us, took us right back to that feeling of how it was when we were in school. We thought we were so cool. And in some ways, we got to live that out a little bit. You know, as big as we could be as a collegiate acapella group on campus, we were, were well known and it was fun. It's fun to have a song that we can put on the album when now that most of us are in our late 30s or 40s that can make us take us right back to how it felt when we were in college. 
We had the one wheel. The studio engineer and the studio owner, David Weber, is all about wacky gadgets, things that you would never see anywhere else. Well, he has this contraption. It's kind of like a hoverboard with one big wheel in the middle. And inside that wheel is the motor, gyroscope, or whatever's in there. It's kind of like a skateboard with one big wheel in the middle. A lot of times at the studio, there's downtime. So we would just go outside, play cornhole, do whatever. We discovered this wheel. A few of us attempted to ride it. I think Jerome took a nice spill, has some battle scars. I think Charlie took a spill. I think Mike took a spill. I tried getting off of it once and it chased me and kind of slamming in the back of my leg, just slicing up in the back of my ankle. So that was fun. That was fun. You got to remember this studio is out in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing else. You can't get any food delivered there. There's nothing around, barely cell phone reception. So I was the only black person up there for years. I think something that'll resonate with a lot of people and get a lot of sympathy for us is there was one time where I'd unfortunately forgotten I'd put a bottle of rosé in the freezer and it completely froze over. You know, we had to wait a while before we could actually drink it. So, you know, if we can just have a moment right now where we can just kind of reflect on that. That might be too tough for people to hear at home. And just know at the studio, it didn't matter what time. It was always five o'clock there. So it just didn't (laughs) matter when somebody would open something. You just, no judgments. It's just, that's what helped you have your focus. I think the rule was if you poured it into a coffee mug, that was okay. If it was before noon. Thanks for listening to What I'd Say presents Straight No Chaser One Shot. To hear the rest of the episodes, subscribe on your favorite podcast player or head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more info on our shows. One Shot is out on November 2nd, and the reissue of Holiday Spirits is out November 16th.